This is Swordplay. Alex, a jury has determined that a mega church in Grand Prairie, Texas, has to pay nearly $4 million in retirement benefits to their former executive pastor who worked there for over 20 years. What kind of retirement plan do you have? Well, Nick, for just a small donation of $50 or more, I'll not only tell you my retirement plan, but I'll also let you in on The Secret, a super powerful and mystical force that all the most successful people have mastered to attain all their goals. Nick, an additional donation of $30, and I'll give you the prayer of Jabez, along with its proper interpretation to gain glorious riches by the will of God. And for another $20, Nick, I'll send you a necklace with the high priestly prayer of blessing written in ancient Paleo-Hebrew. You can have all of these, Nick, for the low, low price of $100. Call now while operators are standing by. I'm not sure that that stuff really works, Alex. But wait, Nick, I'm not finished. Call within the next five minutes, and I'll throw in five, yes, five, prayer stakes to plant around your yard for supernatural protection in the heavenly realms. Wait, what was the question again? This is Swordplay, and we are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And I'm Alex Flood, evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, the book of Haggai, chapter 1. Haggai, chapter 1. Uh, Haggai is a little bit of a shorter book, only two chapters, 38 verses total. In fact... <laughs> We should get started with a lightning round. What do you think, Nick? Uh, well, we do also want to remind our listeners, if you haven't already done so, hit pause, go read Haggai. 38 verses is nothing. That's going to take you five minutes tops. Then come back and listen to our discussion on it as we begin with, as you said, Alex, the lightning, the lightning round. Excellent idea. Well, let me get my uh, handy-dandy timer out here, right. and uh, we're going to get the stopwatch out and ready when you are nick you want you want me to ask the first question i got it okay when was this letter written nick it was written around 520 bc now nick what does the name haggai mean Uh, haggai means uh, haggai haggai means parte and (laughs) uh, it literally means festive maybe he was born on a festival day and He's only called the prophet. There's no genealogical record attached to him. Who was King Darius? This would be Darius Hustaspes, ruler of the Persian Empire from 522 B.C. to 486 B.C. Don't confuse this Darius, Nick, with Darius the Mede from the book of Daniel. Good catch. Who was Zerubbabel the governor? He was governor of Judah. He was a leader of the Jewish remnant that came out of Babylonian exile. You can also see the lineage of Christ for uh, just a touch more on him. Who was Joshua the high priest? He was the first high priest of the Jewish remnant coming out of exile. In Hebrew, his name is Yeshua, foreshadowing anyone. His grandfather was Sariah. He was the high priest put to death by Nebuchadnezzar at the fall of Jerusalem. Nick, why was this letter written? It was to to inspire the completion of the second temple. It's a parallel to the first uh, six chapters of Ezra, and that's the lightning round. That's the round. That was good. A little less than a minute 20. Knocked out some very important questions. Now that the groundwork is laid there, Nick, we should get started in the text of the scripture itself. Yeah. Now, our first question for Haggai chapter 1, we're just going to cover chapter 1 today. We'll do chapter 2 next time. 
we have this phrase given for God, for Yahweh, and it's mentioned several times. What does the phrase the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts mean? Yeah, if you're reading with the NIV, it's going to say Lord Almighty. It's the same same phrase in the original language. It's a designation which is used over 90 times in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And this is a regal title. It's a royal title. It's The first appearance, by the way, is in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 3. Interesting. And, yeah, it's... It's connected to the monarchy of Israel. Yahweh is the sovereign cosmic ruler of the universe over things visible and things invisible, seen and unseen. Uh, He's the commander of the angelic armies of heaven. He's the sovereign king, the monarch who is over the nation of Israel. And so when you see that title... Uh, it's typically associated with all of these different aspects of Yahweh. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I um, hadn't thought about the monarchy, uh, especially over Israel side of the side of the equation. I, I'd only thought of the angelic armies thing. He's he's Lord of the hosts of the host of heaven, the angelic armies, and um, it reminds me kind of that story back in um, with Elijah and and Elisha, and he asked to. Uh, open the eyes of his servant to see the hosts of armies that are surrounding them that are more within than the enemies. Um, just yeah. kind of a peek into that spiritual realm. But, Good connection. Yeah. I wonder I wonder why he would mention that particular phrase in this particular book so many times. Did you say 90 plus times? In Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, those okay. three books. Those three. Very interesting. Well, Nick, is there any significance to the dates that are mentioned? We have a specific date given in verse 1 and verse 15, and maybe it's just to help us with chronology, but is there anything else that you know of? It's interesting. Uh, the yeah, the time stamp is the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month, first day of the month. Uh, you get a similar thing in verse 15, 24th day of the month, sixth month, and the second year of Darius the king. And that phrase we just talked about, Lord of hosts, emphasized the monarchy of God, whether we're talking about his cosmic sovereign rule, his rule here on earth, his rule uh, uh, over the angelic armies of heaven. But the emphasis on the time stamp is not on Israel's monarchy. Uh, there are other prophets who, who do Put the time stamp connected to the to the Israelite monarchy. You can see Hosea one verse one for that. But the emphasis here is on the reign of a foreign king. Hmm. This this foreign king. I think this is intended to draw attention to the fact that Israel is no longer under the earthly monarchy in Israel. Uh, in fact, they're under the times of the Gentiles, to borrow a phrase from Jesus. So I th- I think that may be what is implied by using this particular date stamp. It could just be, hey, this is the date and time when this took place. Uh, uh, What say you, Alex? Well, that's interesting you mentioned the times of the Gentiles. Uh, That certainly does change a few things theologically, right? If you're going to say the times of the Gentiles went way back even to the uh, period after Babylonian uh, captivity. Very interesting to think about, especially bringing it into the New Testament. Appreciate that reference there. 
I don't know if there's anything more to it. I do know that uh, if you look at Numbers chapter 28, verses 1 through 15, I think around verse 10 or 11, uh, there is the obligation for a monthly offering to be due. And so that date in uh, verse 1 there apparently corresponds to the monthly offering due at the temple. But wait, oh no, there's no temple That's to right. bring the monthly offering to. What's up with that? Nick, why would the people think that it wasn't even time to rebuild the temple yet? You know, it's interesting that Yahweh Almighty, he refers to the people here in verse 2 as these people. Uh, he says, uh, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Um, these people seems to be a contrast to my people, right? Hmm. Uh, we would, the reader may expect my people to be there, but instead God is saying these people. There seems to be a divine rebuke here in the way that God is addressing them. The implication is uh, that they're, they have no time to build Yahweh's house because they're so busy building their own palatial mansions, uh, their paneled houses there in verse 4. So uh, why was there no time? It's because the people were so busy building their own palaces that they didn't have time to rebuild the temple of God, God's house. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. That's a little convenient, right? It's like, well, as soon as I finish my stuff, I'll get the God stuff. You know, I think another part of the answer, too, is that you mentioned this being the time of the Gentiles, and, you know, they've come back from Babylonian activity, uh, captivity, but they're not all back, are they? Right. Only a small remnant is back, and not all the tribes are back, are they? You have all the northern tribes still scattered, and that idea that Israel has not returned yet, all the tribes have not come back yet. We touched on this when we did our podcast uh, for Obadiah, right? Mm-hmm. The idea was the promise for the tribes to come back was not yet fulfilled. And I think the idea we're supposed to get from the book of Acts is that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says there were Jews there from every nation under heaven, and a bunch of them were converted. And so I think Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of all the tribes of Israel coming back into the kingdom of God, the reuniting of the tribes into God's kingdom. But that's obviously not where they're at here in the book of Haggai. So maybe they thought, well, as soon as all the tribes come back, any day now, any year now, we'll all build this new temple together. Ah, but that new temple that they were all going to build together was not this temple. It was the future temple of Christ's body, his church, his people on earth. Nick, uh, in verses 5 and 7, we have this interesting phrase where it says, Consider your ways. Right. And it seems to be a little catchphrase within this book. What's going on here with that phrase, consider your ways? Is there anything from the original language? Literally, it says, set your hearts on your ways. And like you said, it's a regular refrain in the book of Haggai here in chapter 1, verse 5, verse 7, chapter 2, verses 15 and 18. It is time for some self-evaluation, time right. for some reflection. Look at what you're doing. That's essentially what it, what it means is, is think about it. Think about it. You're so caught up in your home improvement projects, you've neglected God. 
And as a result, rather than having more than enough, you barely have any. Uh, that's what he means here by you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, no one's warm. Your wages, you put them in bags with holes. Uh, if you would put God first and seek his kingdom and righteousness, I think I've read that somewhere, all these things, the crops, the food, the drink, the clothing, the wealth, all this stuff would be added to them. Um, and, you know, my my contention, I've said this before uh, in my preaching, and I'm saying it here on the podcast, my contention is that God's people ought to be the most thoughtful people on the planet Sometimes, though, I think we allow ourselves to get sidetracked with a bunch of other good stuff. We stop thinking, we stop doing the self-examination, and we end up lacking in a number of different ways, but especially we lack spiritually. We're not deep people. And it does. this doesn't necessarily mean that we have stopped praying or fearing God or showing up on Sundays and all that stuff. I mean, think about it. The people of Israel, they, they still feared God. We're going to find that out in verse 12. Right. But they weren't thinking. They weren't stopping to consider their ways and look at what they were doing. And I think that we get caught in the same trap. We stop thinking. And when we stop thinking, we run into all kinds of problems uh, in our spiritual walk. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think it brings another aspect to that relationship that God's people need to have with their creator uh, that's something that is deep needs to be thought about it takes effort and if you think about it Nick the temple at this time it really represented God's relationship to his people uh, the temple didn't make the people special but God being with the people is what made the temple special it was his presence with them and so this phrase here consider your ways literally I think he said set your hearts on your ways. Uh, there's some self-examination that needs to go on here. Haggai was addressing not a building problem, but a heart problem, right? Yeah. So he's getting at the heart of it. Um, we'll get more into that, especially with the uh, I am with you phrase. But we have here in verse 6, this is sort of a side note, but it says you don't have enough to drink to even become drunk. Right. Now, Nick, uh, what is this phrase becoming drunk because when i hear that as an english speaker and reader i'm thinking whoa you don't even have enough alcohol to get tipsy huh yeah <laughs> what a bunch of poor saps you are so what's going on here in the original language uh well my english standard version reads a little different it says you drink but you never have your fill the niv reads similarly uh, you never have your fill and so i think that that reading sounds a bit different than you don't have enough to get drunk. It just means you don't, uh, you're, you're not satisfied. Um, did you find anything different in your research? Yeah, yeah. So I think the idea is just as you said, it's to be filled, to be satiated. Uh, the Hebrew here is shakar. If you're looking at the Septuagint, the Greek is uh, methe. So granted, if, uh, if what you're talking about in a given verse is alcohol then being satiated or full of alcohol is going to result in drunkenness i mean that's obvious but whether or not we're talking about alcohol depends on the context and so it's not inherent in the word itself so you can have this word shakar or methe and it can just mean full or satiated um, so it's not inherent in the word itself at least not in hebrew or greek so this context nick 
would you say it's likely not speaking of alcohol since it refers to being filled enough to become full or drunk since drunkenness is a sin even in the eyes of the moderate drinking christian yeah i'm inclined to see that uh it's it's not talking about contextually um alcoholic beverages um uh so yeah i think it it could but i don't i don't necessarily see that i think it's just like you said talking about being satisfied satiated filled uh how about let's yeah let's look at verse 11 here um what do I, and I believe yours says your new american standard version pull up real quick uh yeah yours talks about i called for a drought on the land on the mountains so alex what did you find out here about mountains what do mountains have to do with crops by the way so in my uh, recent studies uh of deuteronomy we've been going through deuteronomy for our Sunday sermons for the for this most of the year, really. And something I found is that the land that the Israelites came into, the promised land, much of it was uh, full of hills and mountains. And so not a lot of it was just plains. And so the, uh, and then the plains that did exist, they got their water from the, the water that would come down the mountains and the hills. So what that means is this land that they're coming into, it's not quite like the land that they had when they were in Egypt. So in Egypt, when they were in slavery, uh, the land there gets their water from the flooding of the Nile every spring. So the Nile floods, and what they do is they cut out these channels for the flood water to come into, and then that'll channel into all their gardens, uh, their farmland, into wells, into cisterns, so that they can pull from that water throughout the season to water the crops appropriately to have their harvest. So all their water comes from the Nile, and they can even store water away. But in Israel's land, it's much different. It's hard to irrigate water in the mountains. I mean, how are you going to get it up there? It's just, it's not possible. So the way that that land is watered, and you get this from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 10 through 12, by the way, is the land of Israel was watered by rain. And really, that was the only way. So if God did not send the rain on time, in the right proportion, in the right frequency, uh, then their crops would suffer. They'd either have a very low crop or no crop at all. And if that happened, that was a clear sign that they were to look for to know, if they hadn't realized it already, that they are not in covenant with Yahweh. They've broken covenant. And this is a warning sign to repent and to turn around before something even worse happens. You could see, Nick, why people would then want to, in their hardness of hearts, turn away from Yahweh to worship Baal. Because Baal was the god of the rains. He, he, he was the cloud rider, the storm rider, who comes and brings the rains for the crops. And they would say, well, if Yahweh is not going to bring us water... Then who brought water here before Yahweh and us showed up? The Canaanites, they got water from the storm god Baal. And so you could see how people would reason in the hardness of their hearts to go off into idolatry. But this whole mountains, the land, the way it was watered, their food, I mean, their very livelihood, it depended on God bringing the rains. And that depended on their covenant faithfulness to God. So that's that's what I found. Yeah, and... And I just, for, I guess, a point of clarification, we're not talking about, like, Mount Kilimanjaro here, are we? <laughs> when we talk about mountains, we're, 
Um, in fact, my English standard says, uh, instead of mountains, says hills. Yeah, very uh, hilly is, country, the hill yeah, country. Yeah, and so we're talking about, you know, not giant mountain peaks and that sort of thing. We're talking about rolling hills. The phrase that came to my mind was amber waves of grain, right? Um, and maybe that's uh, a bit of what's in view here as well. Um, the point is, is they wouldn't have had a way to carry water up the hills up to the right. plateaus where they had all their crops and grain and beasts of burden and cattle, all of that. They couldn't get water up there. There was no way to do it. So the river was at the bottom in the valley, and they didn't have a way to pull that water from the river up into the hills, up into the mountains. They had to rely upon the rain. So that's that's the only... But yeah, you're right. We're not talking about uh, the Himalayas here. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nick, uh, what, was the, what was the next question we have on our list? Uh, right here, verses 10 and 11... Um, we're talking about all these crops, but he's also saying the heavens above you withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Um, he's talking about all the, the grain, uh, the new wine, the oil, right, the ground, right. and all that. So what do crops have to do then with covenant? That's a great question. And there's a couple places in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, that speak to this point. Leviticus 26, verses 18 through 20. Uh, the other passage, Deuteronomy 28, verses 22 through 24. I'm actually going to read the Deuteronomy 28 passage. It says, mm-hmm. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. Uh, they shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over you, over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. Uh, from heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. This is this particular passage, uh, the set of verses, is in a larger context of the covenant of blessings and cursings. Um, chapter 28, also 29 and 30 of Deuteronomy, deal with the covenant of blessing and cursing. And the first 14 verses of this chapter dealt with the blessing. That if you keep covenant, you will be blessed in your going and your coming. I'm going to supply you with abundant rainfall, and you're never going to lack in the land. But beginning in verse 15 and the following verses, which run through the end of the chapter, is this tirade of curses. If you do not keep covenant, there's going to be a stiff penalty. And the penalty, one of the penalties, for failing to keep covenant with Yahweh was no rain. And... So if you don't have rain, if the heavens above you are bronze and all you're getting is powdered rain, right? Powder. <laughs> Sounds um, like an oven that he turned on broil. <laughs> yeah. And so if you don't have any rain coming down and if you're just your ground is scorched because of the intense heat and all that, there's not going to be any crops. There's going to be economic disaster in the land. And that is the price that Israel would pay for failing to, as he says there in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, failing to obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And so Haggai here, as the prophet is saying, he's speaking the words of God, and this is what this is the connection here. You've not kept covenant. And since you've not kept covenant, the heavens have withheld dew, you don't have any rain, there's drought in the land, and all this. this these are signs of um, penalty, punishment 
curse for failing to keep covenant. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, Nick, what is the significance then of the people's response? They hear this, and maybe they call to mind the verses that you brought up from Deuteronomy, and what does it say that they did? Well, uh, we're talking about verse 12 here. They, um, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest, all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of Yahweh, their God. Um, they also, the end of verse 12 says, they feared Yahweh. So first, I want us to notice that it's only a remnant. And you mentioned this earlier, Alex, not all the people have come back. Uh, this is this is just a remnant. Uh, uh, in other words, a small number of Jewish people have returned from Babylonian captivity to populate the land. Um, God had always promised that, by the way, that there would be a remnant that would return. And these people, they would seek him with their whole heart. That was the plan. Isaiah 10 verse 21 is an example of that. Um, but it doesn't seem like they've done that. They haven't sought God with their whole heart. Um, they are the remnant, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so um, the twofold response is they obey God right. and they fear him. And that is um, reverential awe and respect for Yahweh. That's, that's what this remnant has done. Right. Well, that's an impressive response, I think, especially considering some of that backdrop. Maybe they hadn't sought him with a whole heart and looking upon their generations before that went into captivity, the people's heart were pretty hard going into Babylon. So there's been a period of softening going on. Nick, what else do we have here? Uh, let's talk about verse 13. And uh, Alex, maybe you can speak a bit to how is Haggai a messenger of Yahweh by the commission of Yahweh? Okay. Well, there is this idea that prophets are commissioned by Yahweh, and how they're commissioned is that Yahweh brings them into the presence of his divine counsel. Now, you get this idea in Jeremiah chapter 23. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, starting around verse 16, that whole context, uh, verse 16, verse 22 hits on it. God is saying, hey, you're listening to all these false prophets, but did any of these false prophets stand in my counsel? No, they did not. They don't tell you the truth. They just tell you what you want to hear, and they're going to bring you into disaster. But Jeremiah, he has stood in the presence of God's counsel. Isaiah, remember chapter 6 in Isaiah, when Isaiah gets brought into the throne room of God, he gets to stand before the throne of God in the divine counsel. Think about Ezekiel. Ezekiel was not brought to the throne room. The throne room was brought to Ezekiel. God got on his mobile chariot in the clouds, and his uh, Merkavah went rolling in the thunderclouds to meet Ezekiel. And so the throne room came to Ezekiel, and he got to stand in God's divine counsel. It almost sounds a lot like the way God showed up on Mount Sinai in the pillar of fire at the top of the mountain with lightning flashing forth, and him surrounded by his divine counsel. So there is this idea that if you were a legitimate prophet, you had this encounter, you had this commission where you actually stood before Yahweh and were told by him and his divine counsel what to do. So it's rare uh, also, looking at Haggai, it's rare also to have a prophet 
not give his ancestry. I think you mentioned this genealogy before. Everybody else, like Zerubbabel and Joshua, says they're the son of somebody. But Haggai doesn't say that. It's it's uh, missing. And it kind of makes you think, because there are other strange figures like this that pop up every now and then in the Bible. And the one that comes to mind immediately is, uh, Nick, is, who's the guy without genealogy? Yeah, uh, Melchizedek. Like, yeah, Melchizedek, yeah. right? No father or mother, yeah. And there's all kinds of theories as to who Melchizedek is. And, you know, maybe we don't know for sure, but I've always kind of thought Melchizedek was some sort of angelic figure. Um, so when it says here that Haggai is a messenger of Yahweh by the commission of Yahweh, that word messenger, it's angel. It's angel. Now, uh, angel means messenger, so it can refer to to somebody from the heavenly realms or a, a person, a human from the earthly realms. But he says uh, in the in the Septuagint, here's how it reads, Haggai, the angel of Yahweh, said among uh, the angels of Yahweh to the people. Now catch that again. In the Septuagint, it says, Haggai, the angel of Yahweh, said among the angels of Yahweh to the people. So how is Haggai a messenger of Yahweh by the commission of Yahweh? Haggai might have been an angel. He might have been an angel. You get this verse, uh, this idea in the New Testament when it says they de- they were delivered to them the law of God by angels. That's uh, brought out by Stephen in his speech in Acts chapter 7. So that's, that's what I'm throwing out there. I'm thinking Haggai could be a prophet with strange guy with no ancestry and just leave it at that but he could also be an angel that's what i think right on (laughs) (laughs) so uh nick yeah the next thing that haggai says in his message is that yahweh wants them to know that i am with you this is verse 13 what's the significance of god saying i am with you this is a promise of the presence of Yahweh among the people. Examples could be multiplied, but the one that stands out to me is Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Uh, in chapter 13, it's a familiar story. Twelve spies sent into the promised land to check out the land. Ten spies come back. They carry a bad report. Can't do it. Only two spies, Caleb and Joshua, they bring back a good report. Yes, we can. Chapter 14 is where the people rebel, and they get on the complaint train, next stop, Grumble Station, and they're saying stuff like, let's choose a new leader to take us back to Egypt, instead of having Moses be their leader. And here in Haggai, it's a different uh, Joshua, but there in Numbers, the Joshua was the successor of Moses. He reminds the people, Yahweh is with us. And that was a crucial part of the formula for their success in taking the land, was that Yahweh is with us. Um, And so the people, uh, Moses intercedes for them, God's wrath is taken away, and that generation is going to die in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. That was their history. That was a very familiar story that uh, was in their Bible. And so I think they sh- they would have picked up, they should have picked up on the language here used by Haggai 
as he speaks in the presence of Zerubbabel and now again a different Joshua, who's the high priest, that Yahweh is with him. I am with you, he's saying. So get busy with the temple project, and I'm going to cause this plan to succeed. That's what Yahweh is saying to them. Uh, so that's that's the significance of the I am with you statement. It's the promise of the presence, uh, the promise of divine presence with his people. And uh, it's the name, yes. of, name of Jesus, right? Uh, he says... Em- Emmanuel. Yeah, yeah. Emmanuel. It's, it's on the tip of my tongue. I couldn't remember. God with us. Yeah, God with us. I wonder if this is also connected to the phrase Yahweh of hosts. He's the commander of the hosts of, of all the angels of the angelic armies. And if he sends those angels out as ministering servants of winds and fire to uh, minister to those who will inherit salvation, getting that from the Psalms and from the book of Hebrews, um, this idea that God sends his angels out to help us and to serve us, uh, he's with us. Maybe there's a connection there between that repetition of Yahweh of hosts and I am with you. Well, Nick, I think this brings us to the tough tough text right tough text of the day which is verse 14 right that's right nick verse 14 it says so the lord stirred up the spirit of zerubbabel the son of shealtiel governor of judah and the spirit of joshua the son of jehozadak the high priest and the spirit of all the remnants of the people and they came and worked on the house of the lord of their and the lord of hosts yahweh of hosts their god on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Okay, so Nick, tough text. What does it mean for the Lord to stir up someone's spirit? What is that? Yeah, man, this is a great question. Every, so we're fresh off the heels of the 13th verse, that word from God, I am with you, and everyone's spirit is stirred up by Yahweh, that's what the text says, in response to his word. Now, we should know that this has happened before among the exiles. Um, back uh, in Ezra 1, verse 5, that's what we're told, is um, when they left what had become the Persian Empire. But whatever zeal they had when they left Persia uh, has... has uh, well, the zeal for God's house had been consumed by their own selfish desires. That's what had happened. Um what is pictured here is the image of a person who's been awakened from sleep and they someone's come in awaken them and they're supposed to do something which they would not have done had they been asleep and so in this case the people have been roused from their spiritual slumber to do the urgent work of temple construction and beautification and so it was through the prophetic word. I want to. I want to emphasize this. It's through the prophetic word spoken by Haggai and Zechariah that the minds, the spirits of the people, have been stirred up to get busy. And may I just say that when you're in church, oh diligent listener, and you're listening to the word of God being preached, and you hear the preacher make a good point, and you think, "Oh man, that's a good point. I really need to do something about that." <laughs> Don't let that thought die in the pew. Mm. I'm persuaded that when that happens, when you say, man, it's a good point, I need to do something, I'm persuaded that's a spirit of God stirring up your spirit within you for action. And it's action for the sake of the kingdom, it's action for the sake of Christ. And so, yes, ask what you should do, and then 
do it. Put it into practice, all right? Your spirit's been stirred up. Just like these folks, their spirit had been stirred up, and they acted. They did something about it, and so also we should do the same thing. Uh, Alex, what do you say? Well, I'll first say that's a really good point. Um, The Word was designed to have an impact upon us, right? It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's supposed to pierce us, to cut us through, to cause that self-reflection that, uh, what is it, put your heart upon yourself, that phrase that's used in Haggai here. So that's an especially applicable and important point that you bring out. As I was thinking about this question, I was reminded of our little excursus into the Apocrypha last time and the story of Susanna when she was being unrighteously persecuted by the wicked elders and judges among them. Mm-hmm. And an angel came and stirred up the spirit of Daniel to right. intervene on Susanna's behalf to rescue her from the wicked elders and judges. And I began to look to see if... Uh, you know, do angels or spirits do this kind of thing often? And I found a couple other things. God's spirit, it says, began to stir within Samson. That's in Judges chapter 13, verse 25. And you get some of that language for the other judges as well about the spirit coming upon them. Uh, the God of Israel stirred up the spirits of the uh, kings of Israel, or I'm sorry, the kings of Assyria to take them captive Um the northern tribes that is and so god does do that from time to time he stirs up the spirits of the enemies of his people in order to punish his people hmm. um i think the lord this is what it just kind of comes down to uh, i think the lord can send angels to stir someone's spirit up to take action on a given matter and it seems to be highly effective and i think it can be in conjunction or separate from um a powerful message So the word can stir up your spirit. God himself can stir up your spirit. God can send an angel like he did with Daniel to stir up his spirit. Or he could do all three at the same time. There could be a combination or mixture of the matter. I think either way, what you see is every time you see this phrase coming up, is that it works. It seems to be highly effective. When God wants to stir someone's spirit up, it works. And uh, so I don't know if uh, maybe I just didn't, eat my Wheaties this morning, but when I was looking at Haggai, I just saw angels all over the place. Yahweh of hosts, the angels. Haggai, the angel. (laughs) The stirring up of someone's spirit by an angel. I just kept seeing it all over the place, and maybe it fits and maybe it doesn't, but there seems to be uh, some messaging going on in the book of Haggai to let the people know that it's not just stuff happening in their physical realm around them that gets things done but it's also in the unseen realm around him where God's work is taking place to get things done. That's a tough text. It's a good question. (laughs) It is. All right, Nick, what do we have in store next week? Haggai chapter 2. Haggai. So eat your Wheaties and do your homework. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't even like Wheaties. I don't know why I say that. Why do people (laughs) say Wheaties? Marshmallow. That was was the commercial uh, back in the day, Better Eat Your Wheaties. That's right. Why are we not getting a sponsor from Wheaties right now? That's right. Hey, just saying, Wheaties, kick some bones down our way. Eat your Reese's Puffs, and (laughs) you'll be good to go. Reese's Puffs are healthy, I think. Probably not. Um, Haggai Chapter 2 next time. We will finish the book of Haggai. Very interesting letter. And then after Haggai, uh, 
stay tuned and we'll let you know what we're jumping into next. Nick, are there any other... In the meantime, uh, if you have a question for us, Alex, where can they send that question to? Yes. Thank you for reminding me. Send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Go into the iTunes store, the Google Play store, search swordplay, and you'll find us. Subscribe to the podcast. uh, Leave a review so we can get the word out about this podcast to even more people. Well, thanks again for tuning into another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.